Good morning, Christ Church. Uh, we are blessed again this week to have a guest speaker and preacher with us in Brian Wallace, who is not a guest to Christ Church. Uh, but for those of you who do not know Brian, uh, Brian and his wife Lisa are longtime friends and members of Christ Church. Brian is an ordained priest in our diocese, Churches for the Sake of Others. Uh, Brian is also the, uh, just one more bit on his bio, there's much more I could say, but he's the director of the Fuller Seminary's Center for Missional and Spiritual Formation, which has been a partner of Christ Churches for a long time. Many other churches participate in this work with Fuller, but we've been offering these Fuller cohorts each year for a while now in partnership with Brian. He's the mind behind the design of that. We're excited for another one this fall. You'll be hearing more about that in the coming weeks. But we're grateful and blessed to have Brian sharing with us this morning. So let me invite him and uh, ask you to join me in welcoming him to come forward as I pray for him. Oh God, we're so grateful for our friend and brother, Brian, for the way that you have blessed us through him, for the work that he's done, for the way his life has been surrendered to you, to be offered up, Lord, as an instrument for your purposes. I pray this morning that you would speak, prepare us to receive your word through him in your good name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. How are you, Christ Church? What are you carrying in today? What has come with you into this service? I'm carrying a lot into today, and in these last weeks as I've prepared, I'm aware of what I'm carrying. A lot of weariness. It's been a hard spring. Grief of, at the loss of one of our dearest friends to cancer, leaning into my mother's decline and eventual passing sometime this year, we anticipate. Lots of hard work. You know, do you ever feel like the disciples that we just heard about sent as a lamb among wolves. It's hard to live, and I bet, like you, me, you're carrying in some of these things. So as I have leaned into Psalm 131 in preparation, it's been a gift to me. And in some ways, I think I'm preaching to myself this morning, that the gift of Psalm 131 would resonate first in my soul. My first memory of an encounter with this wonderful psalm took place 27 years ago. I was a young senior leader within a varsity Christian fellowship. I was the youngest regional director in the country in an up-and-coming region. I'd come to restart the work in Texas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas, and things were on the move. I had lots of questions, of course, burdens and dreams for the work. My boss, Doug, had come into town, and we were going to spend some time together. We were going to be at a lake house where I hoped he would mentor me, develop my skills, hone my leadership and my wisdom. I'd set my sights pretty high. Instead, as soon as we got to the lake house, Doug sat me down in a chair on the back porch with a single sheet of paper with the words of Psalm 131 on it. He said, read this for a while. I'm coming, going for a walk. I'll be back in two hours. I had two hours to read and reread the shortest psalm in the Bible, three verses. He came back and we discussed it over lunch, and then he repeated that pattern two more times. I was alone with the psalm for six hours that day, and I confess I didn't get it. Not one word penetrated my heart. I was mad. On the way back to my house, I got argumentative with Doug, and I said, hey, I need training in leadership. I need you to help me become the best person I can be. Why do we waste our day reading three verses of the Bible? I was mad. I was hurt. 
and I was deeply worried that I would miss my chance to become a great leader. I was worried, like we heard in Galatians, that I wasn't going to show up in the flesh who I really was. I certainly wasn't still. I wasn't quiet. Doug is amazing. He listened to me with patience and with love. He was not defensive or argumentative. He listened to my soul's cry. And when I was done with my venting and my wrestling, he simply said, Brian, I'm not worried about your leadership, but I'm very worried about your soul. Doug, with expert love and tender leadership, used this psalm to invite me into not just caring for my own soul differently, but into reframing of what I thought life was all about. And I think that reframing may have saved my life. I certainly has saved me from myself, from my ambitions, from my constant wrestling, striving, and anxiety. Now, I think this psalm has two ways that it works in our souls, and I want to walk you through both of them. First, the psalm serves as a check to ourselves, what Eugene Peterson calls a pruning, a way to put at bay our unruly ambitions by cutting them off paying attention to them. And second, the psalm offers an irresistible invitation that we enter into rest, into peace, and into hope. Let's start with the first verse. It says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I've not occupied myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now, many translations render the first line as, my heart is not proud. And you know what we say about people who say they're not proud. No humble person would ever deny that they have some pride in their life. It's like our youngest child when he was a toddler. He would be riding in the back seat and out of the blue he'd yell, I'm not tired! Dead giveaway. We knew he'd be asleep in moments. (laughs) Same thing is true when we declare, I'm not proud. It doesn't make sense to declare in a prayer that I'm not proud. My heart is not lifted up. So what's going on? I think it's not the psalmist declaring a state of being as much as a decision to choose a way of being. When we pair the first half of that verse with the second, we begin to understand what's going on. I don't occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me, he says. See, the psalmist is admitting that there are things that are beyond him, things that are, go beyond his pay grade, so to speak. Again, it's a decision to a way of living, one that chooses to let God be God and to take our place in a world that is in keeping with the most important truths in the universe. God's creator, I'm creation. God's eternal and I'm temporal. God's all-powerful and I'm really limited. To pray this psalm is to decide to let God be God, to let him run the universe, let him run my life, let him provide for me day by day by day. It's a decision. It's a decision not to set my sights on things that are beyond my grasp because God's the only one who can and should reach that far. Eugene Peterson renders the first verse in a way that brings emphasis to this decision God, I'm not trying to rule the roost, he writes. I don't want to be king of the mountain. I haven't meddled where I have no business or fantasized grandiose plans. You and I have no business trying to run the universe or run our neighborhood or even run our families. It's way too much for us. 
But this gets complicated when we understand that this psalm was written by a king, King David. What is beyond the pay grade of a king? If he doesn't think he should think too highly of himself or involve himself in weighty matters of national import, what business do any of us have exerting ourselves into anything? The psalm's not an invitation to passivity, however. The decision to take our place in the world under God is not to abandon our roles, our callings in the world. We're called to be God's hands and feet in the word, feeding the poor, clothing the naked, visiting the prisoner, protecting the widow and the orphan. We are still called to put our hands to the duties that God gives us, tasks and engagements of our various callings, to love our families, to cultivate a loving and just community and nation. But we are not to run the universe or even our part of it. That's God's job and he's been doing it well before any of us were here, and he will be doing it just fine when we're gone. We may not understand what God's doing. We may not even like it. But I'm not running the, ruling the roost. I'm not going to concern myself with what only God can really do and what only he can comprehend. It's too great and too marvelous for me. But how do we do that? How do we go about living our lives and being faithful to our calling in a world without overstepping our bounds? I think it helps us to understand how the Hebrew mind understands the nature of a day. For thousands of years, the Hebrew culture considered the day to begin when the sun went down. Our basic understanding is the day is that it begins when the sun comes up or when our alarm clock goes off. We orient it around our activity. But think about the mindset if we shift our understanding to the start of the day being at sunset. The day does not begin with my activity, agency, or energy in the world. No, the day begins and I go to bed. It's like saying I'm not the most important thing in the world going on. The day will begin with my inactivity and God who never sleeps will be at work ruling the world and starting the day without needing me to be any part of that. Now that doesn't mean I don't have any important work to do. It just means that we're not and our work is not primary in the, in the world. And the Hebrew concept of the day holds so much dignity and value for our participation in God's work. The unfolding of his rule and reign in the world will happen and we wake up into the world in which God's already been at work while we slept and we awake into his invitation to us to lovingly, joyfully, and freely invite us into his will in his way. Now, I'm, I admit that this is a counterculture way of living, isn't it? You won't find this invitation in any of the business journals or self-help books or any of the Instagram uh, influencers you might follow. The advice of the world is seize the day, exert your power, take charge of your life. And there's some things that do require you to act, exert some effort. Peterson says this, what is described in scripture as a basic sin, the sin of taking things into our own hands, being our own God, grabbing what is theirs, what the, where you can get, is now described in our culture as basic wisdom. Improve yourself by whatever means you're able. Get ahead regardless of the price. Take care of me first. God puts all of that on its head. David, the author of the psalm, was a king, remember. 
He had to wake up each morning and make decisions that influenced the political, social, religious, and family life of every person in his nation. But again, the psalm is not an invitation to passivity. This is David's reminder to himself as king. He's not God. He has an important role to play, but he's not king of the universe. God is. It's a check on his ego, his ambitions, and his runaway dreams for himself. It's an invitation to humility. There's a way of going about our life under God, for God, rather than ourselves. Now, this balance is really hard to maintain. Getting that proper relationship to my work and calling while not overstepping my bounds to it is, for me, one of my daily struggles. In, in part because I really care about the work I do. And so should you. I do. You do, too. Your work has consequence, and there's issues going on in the world that really matter. We should know about them. We should get involved. Sometimes reminding myself that I'm not God is not enough to curb my appetite for success as a three on the Enneagram, I confess. I crave the good feeling of sense of being noticed and praised, of doing well, of getting it done. I think we all do in some sort of way. So for me, the next step in my life is getting still and getting quiet, just like for David. He says, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things that are too great and marvelous for me. So I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Calm and quiet do not come naturally in my world. There's nothing naturally calm and quiet about a family, a job, a commute. All of life seems to awaken my inner infant. And my soul gets noisy, unsettled, and fussy. How about you? It takes work to get quiet. And for most people, it's a deliberate choice when it happens with planning, care, and dis discipline. Ultimately, it's a spiritual practice. In my research for my doctorate, I studied exemplar leaders, people who were engaged in mission in the world, who were flourishing spiritually and emotionally. What was fascinating was that of all the people I studied, there was only one specific spiritual discipline that was common to every single one of them. They all took regular retreats. Part of their habit as leaders, their discipline in the world, was to remove themselves from their daily activity to literally put the world on mute so they could cultivate the ability to hear the voice of Jesus. It's very hard to be quiet while holding a noisy phone that's constantly begging for your attention and sending you messages about your relative value in the world. It's impossible with a constant barrage of Fox News or CNN blaring in your television telling you what to believe. We need to silence the world and its messages about our value and security that are ruining and rooting our lives in lies. Quiet and calm are not ignorant of the real issues in the world. They simply do not let the world around them determine what's most important, most valuable, or true. I think this is the core challenge of all discipleship, fundamentally to our relationships to God. Jesus talks about this in what is called the parable of the soils. Do you remember that? It's in many of the Gospels. There are four soils. 
There's that, that hard pan road where the seed, the word of God, can't penetrate the soil and it's stolen by birds. There's the rocky soil where the seed sprouts up joyfully, but where there's little root and the trials of life burn it up and it goes away. There's also the good soil where the plant can flourish and produce a crop 30, 60, 100 times more than was planted. And then there's the other soil, the weedy soil, where the plant grows up among the weeds, the thorns. It still lives, it still produces a crop, but the real fruitfulness is choked out in competition with everything going on around it. I think this soil describes almost every one of us in this room. It's endemic to the American experience of faith in Christianity. This is Jesus' commentary about what's going on. He says that the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things choke out our lives and make it unfruitful. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things... All of that is loud in my life. Just like when I was 27 years ago, when I wanted more, more leadership, more skill, more notice, and more place. I think we all wrestle with some of that in some way. It does not take a careful reading of the word to know that the author of the psalm wrestled with it too. David struggled with his family, his temptations, with the weight of all of his work, and yet he chose to cultivate a life of quiet of stillness. It's the grown-up evidence of a relationship with God. The picture of a weaned child is not that we stay small, dependent, and infantile. Rather, it's a picture of a person who can now be at peace enough to enjoy a relationship with their parent, confident that that parent knows what is needed and is loving enough to provide it. My food, my clothing, my meaning, my value my place in the world. It's a word picture of seek first the kingdom and I'll take care of everything else. The invitation is to still quiet our hearts that let God be in charge of the very real concerns and cares and troubles in the world and our lives. And in a way that cultivates greater relationship and intimacy with God himself. Theologian Arthur Weiser says it this way, no desire now comes between you and your God. For you're sure that God knows what you need before you ask him. And just as this weaned child gradually breaks off the habit of regarding the mother only as a means of satisfying his own desires and learns to love her for her own sake, so the worshiper learns to desire God for himself and not as a means to fulfillment of his own wishes or desires. His life's center of gravity has now shifted he now rests no longer in himself, but in God. A wean child can now say no to the cares of the world. I can get involved, but they're not mine to fix. I can say no to the deceitfulness of wealth. I will be content with what I have. I can order my desires so that they're no longer driving me to achieve, to attain, or to control. I'm now free to place my hope in something worthy of my life, God himself. And that's how David ends his psalm. Not just for himself, but the entire nation. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and evermore. Friends, this is 
a psalm that's not an invitation to passivity, where we do not put our hand to the duties, tasks, and engagements of our various callings. The invitation, rather the promise, is that we can do it with rest, confidence, and peace of one whose hope is in the Lord, who loves us more than we can ask or imagine. Peterson says this about it. And this is what Psalm 131 nurtures, a quality of calm, confidence, quiet strength that knows the difference between unruly arrogance and faithful aspiration, that knows how to discriminate between infantile dependency and childlike trust, one that chooses to aspire to hope. In the midst of my life, with all of its cares and concerns, with all of its duties and its burdens and its losses, I can still inquiet my soul. God's got this. God's got me. So I will trust in him. Earlier I mentioned this idea of taking retreats, and I know that for many of you, that's one of the hardest things in the world. Retreat for some of you young moms might be using the restroom by yourself (laughs) for 20 seconds. There are retreats scheduled on my calendar that are hard to take. Life interrupts. But I think this is how this short little psalm worked in David's life. Purposely just three little verses he could carry through the day. A mini retreat from the cares of the world. The siren call of wealth and our constant desire for things other than Jesus. It's a literal 30 second reminder that we are not alone that there's something more important and someone more powerful than the challenges that we face. And this is what the psalm has become for me 27 years after spending six hours of clueless reflection on it. I now carry it with me everywhere. It's with me. It's in me. It's a touchstone that connects me back to the very real love of God. Let's close our time in mini-retreat together. Would you pray this with me? Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.